The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So last week I spoke a little bit about this concept of not-self, and I thought I'd build a little bit on that. And that is this idea that, or the teaching, or the realization, or the notion that we, there, we don't have like a core. We don't have an essence. Oh, are you looking for this? Here we go. <laughs> that we don't have a core or an essence onto which experiences get added. It's not like we have this thing in the middle that stays the same, that then gets to taste good food, comes to a meditation, or speaks into a microphone that doesn't work necessarily. <laughs> there, there isn't like this core thing that experiences get added onto. Instead, there's just experiences. That's all there is. And this is one of the key teachings of the Buddha. And it's um, one of the characteristics of things and people that they don't have this inherent stable core or essence. And this is a teaching that's like a little bit difficult to understand and sometimes it uh, feels a little bit silly because like, well, of course, of course things have existence. I'm here, you guys are there, there's chairs there, there's a bell here. But we're talking about there's not a permanent, unchanging core essence at the middle. Is that it's just a collection, a collection of experiences, all kinds of experiences being anything that arises in the senses, including the mind. So one thing I want to talk about a little bit today is these like misconceptions, some of these ideas that we might have about the teachings of not-self. That when we hear this, we might like misinterpret it. We might think, well, it means something else. And this is uh, something from Jack Cornfield. And he writes that um, sometimes there's this idea that, okay, well, there's this egocentric or there's this self-centered ego, and we have to get rid of that. But that's not, not actually right, because it's not, there's nothing to get rid of. <laughs> it's not actually there. This is like an old religious idea that some religions have, that there's like this bad part that has to be gotten rid of, and there's this good part that has to get rid of the bad part. So that's not what we're talking about here when we talk about not self-teachings. It's uh, this idea that we have to get rid of a bad part is sometimes like why there's ascetic practices or why sometimes people will do some extreme things as they think that it's going to purify or get rid of or something, this unwanted part of themselves. But that's not how the Buddhists see this practice. It also, this idea of not-self doesn't mean that there's this inner sense of apathy or meaninglessness. It doesn't feel like there's, it doesn't mean and it doesn't feel like there's this emotional poverty, we might say, that there's just this uh, 
sense of hollowness as opposed to some vitality or juiciness or um, some some thing that uh, I was going to say enervates us or excites us. Instead, there's this way in which we might have this feeling that there's this lack of well-being inside and that somehow that's what's being pointed to when we talk about not-self. But it really couldn't be further from the truth or than the experience. So we might hear these and feel like, oh, there's a reason in which we might have this um, sense of like inside of ourselves might feel a little bit hungry or desolate or something like that. And that really is not what's getting pointed to with the not-self teachings. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. Sometimes when we hear this, we might think, oh yeah, I do have this inner hollowness that's inside. That, And so I must be on the right spiritual practice or right spiritual path. But that's not what's being pointed to. And it's this idea or this teaching, this experience of not-self also is not an excuse to withdraw from life. It's not a way to reinforce any of these maybe underlying depressive feelings like where we kind of feel diminished and don't really have energy to be with the world or nor do we even want to want to be with the world. Or maybe we even have this fear of the world or maybe we have this lack of motivation. So not-self is not pointing to that either. And then maybe one thing I'll say is that these not self teachings are not suggesting that we should like wipe out any of the ways in which we can function in our lives in the way that we can get up get dressed <laughs> have a breakfast go to work or you know do or stay home at work or do whatever it is that we're going to do with our days so it's absolutely not pointing to that either, that somehow we would like lose capacities that we have or a way that we can just run our lives. I'm trying to think of a way to uh, say that, but just our normal way of operating, not self-teachings is not pointing to like, okay, we're going to get rid of that or somehow it's going to fall away. In contrast to some of these ideas that we might have. This uh, joy and freedom is what characterizes the experience of not-self. So it's this joy and freedom that's getting pointed to. When you talk about not-self, this maybe this beautiful spaciousness or this unburdening that arises. And so we definitely need to like honor our personal identities. So we're not saying to get rid of those either with this not-self teaching. So that we can recognize the deep patterns and the archetypes that we have that make up our individuality and then honor them and transform them in a way that really support us. And so this practice is about how we can do this transformation. So we're not getting rid of anything or 
discarding something or uh, throwing something away. Instead, it's, it's all about a transformation. So some of these uh, personal identities, or maybe we have like this uh, a critical intellect. And there's a way that we use that to have some discriminating wisdom that helps us with this path of practice. Or maybe we have this appreciation and desire for beauty. Maybe you're an artist. And then we use that as a way to notice and build and cultivate harmony. To use this force that creates harmony so that we're not in contention with our experience. Or maybe that we have this a capacity for this intuition of a way of sensing the way things are. And we can transform that into a capacity for healing ourselves and others, being sensitive to what's needed next. So again, this not-self-teaching is not pointing to that we have to abandon or somehow be different than how we are. It's more of a transformation that allows this joy and freedom that arises. So, and to be sure that a strong and healthy sense of self is needed for this path of practice. It's definitely required, and part of this path of practice is developing this strong and healthy sense of self. Part of the reasons why we need a strong, healthy sense of self is part of that is just the developmental course of a human is to have a distinct sense of self. The Buddha certainly had that. He had no uh, confusion about who he was. He had no confusion about what he did or was going to do or anything like that. He used the personal pronoun all over the place in his teachings. So he certainly had a very strong sense of self. had a sense of boundaries. This is appropriate. This is not appropriate. And so for us, having a strong sense of self really supports that in some meditative experiences, there can start to be a sense of dissolution, a uh, fading away or maybe even pixelating or something like a sense of self. This can be a meditative experience. And this can be really disorienting or even frightening if a person doesn't already have a strong sense of self. So we need one as we, so that as we go deeper into this practice and start having more experiences, that they, it doesn't derail us or frighten us or confuse us or make us um, run away or because we feel like, oh, I'm definitely going the wrong direction or something like this. So... The interesting thing is this development of a strong sense of self as well as a greater recognition or realization of not-self so that this recognition that there isn't this core or this essence at the inherent or inside any of us that's permanent and going along with us in our life. These two ideas evolve together. So a strong sense of self supports this insight into not-self. Having experience into not-self also supports having a strong sense of self. And in our path of practice, there might be times in which, or seasons, we might say, in which uh, 
one or the other of those are emphasized, but they're definitely part of the practice. Both of them are part of the practice. But one thing is, you know, sometimes when we hear these teachings about not-self, we might think like, either like some puzzlement, like, really? What? (laughs) I certainly feel like I have a self. I'm not quite sure what they're talking about, those Buddhists. (laughs) So I appreciate very much that uh, Andy Olensky, he's a scholar and an author, he wrote uh, something about, he's... uh, he, t- he titled this article, said, I think I am. And he pointed to uh, different ways in which we think that we are. And I think it can be helpful to point these. So one, uh, Andy Olensky says, I feel like the occupant of my body. Okay, this makes sense. That when we like stand or sit in one location... Like everything around us seems like it's relative to us. Like that's farther and this thing is near and that's to the right and that's to the left. So it seems like everything is like we're the center and everything's around us. And when we walk, when we go somewhere, right, the center moves. Kind of like the whole world is in some ways kind of like moving with us in some kind of way. Like Intellectually, we understand that uh, it doesn't. It's not exactly like that. But if we're if we're just with our experience, we will notice that what's near and far, of course, is adjusting as we're moving through space. So we're still the center, and so there's a way in which we might view this body as the basis of this world that surrounds us. We might even say that the world that we're constructing. So the first one is, I feel like the occupant of my body is the first way in which we feel like we have a self. The second is, I have a strong sense of being the beneficiary of the feeling tones. When things are pleasant or unpleasant, I'm the one that enjoys things that are pleasant. And when they're unpleasant, I'm the one that wants to get rid of the things that are unpleasant. And when the, we feel like maybe I'm the victim of the pain or of the discomfort, I'm the one to whom it happens. So when there's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral experiences, we feel like, oh, that we are the beneficiary for whether it's positive or negative of those feeling tones. And then the third one is, I am a person who expresses myself. I am the artiste. (laughs) And there's so many different ways in which we express ourselves, you know, artistically or just speaking or writing or sending emails or the way that we dress, the cars that we drive. And there's so many different ways in which we express ourselves. So we might feel like that uh, we're the ones that are expressing something, something unique about ourselves. And we might even feel like, no matter like how humble these creations are, or maybe even how subtle they are, there's a sense that they are uniquely coming from us. Like nobody else could do it. Like it's just from only... I could do this, only you could do this, only you could do whatever 
it is that you do. And then this, the fourth one is, I feel like an agent. I feel like the one who makes choices. I, I feel like the one that has the decision and action and responsibility and moving through the world doing things and I inherit the inconsequences of those things. That's the fourth one. And then the fifth one is I have the view that I am some sort of essence. This idea that, well, it seems like there's a continuous sense of self inside. So maybe it is permanent or Maybe the sense of that there is this something inside around which everything else congeals, but there's something inside that feels like um, the heart of what's unfolding, of whatever it is it means to be me. For some of you, you might recognize there's these five ways in which we might we feel like. Uh, I am, that we, that we have a sense of self. And the Buddha categorized all experiences into groups of five. Andy Olinsky, I kind of appreciate he used language to put this into something that we can relate to, different ways, these five different ways in which we feel like we have a sense of self. We could say this one way in which we are constructing a sense of self or we feel like we have one. Is we feel like the center of experience, the beneficiary of feeling tones, the artiste, the agent, and the essence. Some of you will recognize that this is the five aggregates. The Buddha's teaching on these psychophysical expressions or experiences. Five different aspects of what it means to have experiences. And as humans, we often, in one of these five ways we feel like a self, because we're, there's a certain type of clinging onto one of these five aggregates. And I'm not going to go into the details about the aggregates. It's all that really matters is that there's five different ways in which we can hold on to something, some part of our experience, and it's that holding on that's creating a sense of self in that moment. But there's a way in which right all of those experiences, of course, are not constant. They're changing all the time. And they're unfolding without any essence, without any core. They're just unfolding. There isn't a me that's making them happen. Those experiences aren't mine. I don't own them. I'm not controlling them. They're just arising and passing away and we're clinging to them in a really subtle way. And it's the subtle way that makes us believe that we have this sense of self. And the sense of self is always changing depending on what it is that we're clinging on. Whether we're the beneficiary of feeling tones or whether we're the artiste or we're the one who is expressing or the one who is doing. 
So this sense of self is actually just a collection of the variations of these five different types of experiences. So rather than a core, this essence, there's just five different types of experiences that are always changing. And this, this is the human experience. And so, but what I describe to you is kind of like this more conceptual way of understanding it. And some of the Buddha's teachings certainly are conceptual. Certainly in this tradition, it's, these aren't like philosophical, but maybe there's a way in which it's more helpful to feel into this experience of self or not self. And certainly that's been my experience is that it's more been meditative experiences that helped me to really understand what's being pointed to because intellectually or conceptually these paradigms like of the five aggregates, I don't know. (laughs) Okay, I guess. You know, I just didn't, when I heard them, I felt like, okay, am I supposed to believe this? What am I supposed to do with this? So it wasn't until I, you know, I had some meditative experiences and started to feel like some of the freedom that's possible when the clinging gets less and less and less and less. Right, the suffering is diminishing and more and more freedom, more and more ease. So there's this way that we can go beyond like the intellect and instead have this like this visceral embodied experience of not-self. So rather than a theoretical or abstract exploration. So when we are sensitive to the sense of self or not-self, well actually, I think I'd rather like point to this with a poem. And this poem is um, entitled Zazen. Many of you will recognize it. Know that this word, this is uh, individuals in the Zen community, they, Zazen is the word that's a meditation practice, sitting in meditation. And this was written by a practitioner, perhaps be uh, Virginia Hamilton Adair. She was in the Zen tradition. And maybe... We can imagine that uh, she's describing what happens during a retreat. And maybe I'll make one explanatory note. Uh, Early in the poem, she uses the expression Saratoga trunk. And that's just like one of these big uh, trunks that we could imagine that long ago people would like put on the ships when they were going across the ocean or something like this, this big giant uh, giant suitcase we might think, something like that okay, so here we go Zazen by Virginia Hamilton Adair and I learned about this poem from Brian Lesage, I should say when I first floundered in, no one knew me not even myself Staggering under a Saratoga trunk crammed with humiliations, bottled like urine samples, nail kegs of anger, carbons of abusive letters, 
chemistry quizzes with F's, even the horse I never had, and two casseroles left over from the dime-a-dip supper. No one remarked that I had brought too much. I was wearing three fur hats donated by opulent cousins, my feet encased in cement ever since the failure of the patio project, and my mouth full of barbs as an old trout. No one praised my appearance. The trunk fell off my back, disgorging its unusual contents at my stone feet, which also came off. The fur hats tumbled like a moth-eaten avalanche, burying a small monk. No one noticed. My sweat began to dry. I folded myself into one piece. No one. That's the end of the poem. I love this way, right? That all these things that we put in these trunks that we carry around, these memories, these things that we are making up the sense of what we think it means to be me, things that entangle us with this sense of self, that uh, we get tangled with the stories and the narratives about what it means, things that happened to us before. I appreciate so much in this poem she talks about like these casseroles from this dinner or the horse she never had or grades she got in, in chemistry. So these stories that we mean, like what does it mean how we were as a student? Are we really smart or maybe not so smart? Or these casseroles, maybe we're a good cook, a bad cook, or maybe nobody likes our cooking whatever it might be. But we think that these things define us in some ways. And we carry them around and it's heavy. It's burdensome. So there's nothing wrong about having narratives with our life, but it's the, of course we have narratives about our life, right? We want our lives to make sense, so we create these narratives. We need them. But what's being pointed to is the clinging to them. The way that we can we can pick them up, but can we also put them down when they're not needed? Because there's a way in which we start accumulating all these ideas about ourselves and things that it means to be ourselves, what it means to be me, and then we have this contraction, this clinging, binding, tension, stress, this way in which we feel limited. We feel penned in. We feel imprisoned. We feel burdened by this sense of self. And we're so used to it, we don't even notice it until we have some other experiences Some of them may be in meditation, but we all have expressions maybe of awe, beautiful sunsets, seeing big, uh, vast expanses of ocean, being on a mountaintop and seeing for large distances. There's a way in which the sense of self often diminishes there and we have this bigger sense of what's possible. 
what it might mean to be a human. So instead we might have this experience of this ease or spaciousness or flexibility or softening, allowing, relief, freedom. Or this type of healing or this strong sense of like just putting down everything that's extra and it turns out everything is extra. We can just pick things up when they're needed and put them down. And so this not-self teaching is pointing to this movement from feeling imprisoned and trapped by this idea of what it means to be me and instead to align with notice, be sensitive to just the flowing nature of experience. Things are unfolding. And there's a caricature, there's, a, there's a, an individual who makes decisions and done, does things, but it's more of a flowing as opposed to this staid self that's at the center and making things happen and to which things happen. So this idea or this notion of not-self, it's not a belief that we have to adopt. It's not something that we have to pretend or make force ourselves in any way. It's just pointing to a potential potential for all of us as the sense of self softens. And this will happen, right? uh, When we're doing our favorite things, dancing to our favorite music, humming. Maybe when we're doing sports or dancing. And these types of things when there's just not so much self-centeredness or self-consciousness. It's pointing to the same thing, the same movement this not-self-teaching. So, maybe I'll end there and open it up and see if there's any comments or questions. Thank you. Now I know... Now I know your names. I can <laughs> I can call on you. I won't. Don't worry. <laughs> have any comments or questions? You don't have to, but I'd just like to make this space in case you do. Thinking. You're thinking. Okay. Bill is trying to come up with a, a doozy of a comment. <laughs> We, we we don't have to. We we don't have to. Oh, Alex has a. I don't think I need the Oh, there's people online. Oh, there's people online. Okay. <laughs> um, I think my question is like I've been meditating for about two and a half, three years, like kind of more seriously. And before that, I meditated sort of on and off. Um, do you think? Could you talk a little bit about how 
like the experience of not-self might like evolve over time as we meditate more? How it might evolve over time. Or how it maybe evolved for you? Yeah. Maybe I'll say this, that sometimes uh, when we... Maybe this is part of the way that I think about it. And I end up using this little uh, analogy in all kinds of different uh, teachings. This idea of a children's slide, or you know, a slide that's in the playground. So there's a ladder up, and then there's a slide that goes down. So often there's effort that, you know, for the slide, it has to go up. And often there's a sense of self that's like, okay, I have to do this, I have to cultivate this, I have to develop that, I'm... You know, we have all these lists, right? Eightfold path, some factors awakening, all this kind of stuff, right? So there's a sense of self that's developing and cultivating qualities and behaving ethically, and meditating, all this kind of stuff. So that is probably like maybe doing that sense of uh, getting up to the top of the slide. But then there's a, a way in which, oh, things are just unfolding, there's a sense that not so much effort, and this can be experienced a little bit of maybe in concentration states when the when the mind and the body start to settle. It doesn't have to be really giant concentration states, but a sense of settling. Then there can just be a sense of, sometimes you use this expression, effortless effort. That's more like, oh, things are happening, but I'm not like making it happen. I'm here... I'm not a victim, it's not happening to me, but there's this ease and just this way of flowing with what's arising. Does this make sense? Okay. You're welcome. Okay. Lately I've thought that I would like to cut through the philosophical thicket of whether there's a self or not. And instead, just think of not-self this way. Whenever I think in terms of myself, I create my own suffering. And I think that relates to something that you said, but maybe I'd like for you to remind me of what you said about <laughs> when when you have concepts of self, you you're trapped. Yeah. Did you say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you kind of reiterate or elaborate? Yeah. So often these ideas of self, right? They're they're limits, right? I'm a person who likes vanilla, but I don't like chocolate. And, you know, I'm a person that does this, but doesn't that. Every time we define something about ourselves, implicit in that is what we're not. And some of that might be true, but there's also a way that we're kind of like defining or imprisoning or trapping ourselves as opposed to yeah, allowing kind of like the flowing of experience or something like this. You're, you're, you're self-limiting. Yeah, yeah. And then experientially there's a way in which it's a, it's a subtle feeling of contraction, too. Or maybe I should use this word, separation. When there's a strong sense of self, then there's a real strong sense of me and everybody else. So there's a strong sense of separation. And that's also a certain amount of suffering, to feel isolated and to feel disconnected from others or from around and our experience, our experience around, yeah. 
Thank you, Bill. Great. Thank you. Okay. Okay. So thank you. Thank you.